At Power Schools Invitation, guests from the worlds of law, business and politics are here to learn more about the case of ex-England cricketer Azim Rafiq. What's it really like to protect the reputation of somebody and to advise a whistleblower in the high-profile world of sport, covering every area of comms, particularly obviously media and political relations? And we want to hear from Azim, I suppose, what it's like to be in the middle of a storm like that from a client's perspective. That's Baroness Nikki Morgan, ex-Secretary of State for the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Over the next hour or so, she will be talking to Azim and to Mark Leftley, Powers Court's Head of Public Affairs, at Ivy Garden in Hoburn about their fight against institutional racism in a sport close to both their hearts. Now Azim is joining us this morning from Dubai where he now lives with his family. He was a prodigious cricketing talent who captained the England under 15s and under 17s. He played for Yorkshire for two spells, both of which were overshadowed sadly by racism and bullying which we will explore. Among Powers Court's guests are two sisters who have accused the Metropolitan Police of institutional racism after shocking failures when investigating the murder of their brother in 2015. Also in attendance, a journalist and news presenter who is suing her former employer, CNN, over wrongful dismissal and disability discrimination following a life-changing injury while working. And although the three cases we will be discussing are very different, they have at least one thing in common, the pivotal role that the media plays in these campaigns for justice. Welcome to the Friday Fix, Powers Court Perspectives, our new monthly series exploring the most pressing questions and interesting opportunities of today's communications landscape. I'm Michael Keating, an associate from Powers Court's public affairs team. Each month, we draw together interviews from across our network of business, media and political experts, bringing you deeper insights and a wider viewpoint on the issues that really matter. Azim played for Yorkshire for two stints in his senior career. A powerful right-arm off-spin bowler, he became the youngest ever player to captain the Yorkshire team and the first Asian player to lead them. But in 2017, after a family tragedy, Azim reflected on his treatment at Yorkshire and throughout his career. During that time, he made the club aware of incidents of racism that he had experienced. Yet, his concerns were quickly swept under the rug. Yorkshire opened an internal review, but later refused to publicly share the findings. They issued a statement that admitted Azim had been the victim of inappropriate behaviour, yet the club failed to give any further details, citing so-called legal restraints. Even Azim did not receive a copy. By this time, Azim had been introduced to Powers Court. The record number of calls I had from Azim was 50 in one day. Um, I think it was 51 to be exact, thanks for that. I had a very understanding wife. I said to my daughter, I've now got three children, I've got you, the cat, and I've got this errant son called Azim. That was Mark Leftley, Powers Court's Head of Public Affairs. He would spend the next two and a half years in near constant contact with Azim through all the ups and downs of this emotionally charged case. In September 2021, pressure on Yorkshire rose. Ex-DCMS Secretary Baroness Nikki Morgan, in the room with Mark and Zim, wrote to the club, urging them to publish the report into racism in full. Still, Yorkshire refused. But then, the internal report into racism at Yorkshire was leaked. Azim's accusations were finally out in the open. 
But once the report was leaked, the whole, I think, spectrum cheered it. You know, everyone on both sides of the political spectrum commented on it, and suddenly we were going to select committee. The Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee of MPs opened an inquiry into racism in cricket. Azim was invited to share his experiences. Under parliamentary privilege, which protects witnesses from being sued for libel, Azim could freely give his testimony about how Yorkshire treated him for the very first time. Here are a few snippets of that shocking testimony from that day in November 2021. Pretty early on, me and other people from Asian background, there was comments such as, you lot sit over there near the toilets, elephant washers, uh, the word paki was used constantly, and there just seems to be an acceptance in the institution from the leaders and no one ever stamped it out. To be honest, all I wanted to do is play cricket and play cricket for England and, and live my dream and live my family's dream. In 2017 pre-season tour, we were in a, in a place and Gary Balance walks over and goes, why are you talking to him? You know he's a packy or he's not a shake, he's got no oil. And this happened in front of teammates, it happened in front of coaching staff, everyone saw it. Uh, but because the institution and the environment, it becomes such a norm in there that I don't think anyone thought there was anything wrong with it. And that's probably why some people don't even remember it. The tipping point came when Azim and his wife suffered the miscarriage of their first child. End of 2017, um, we had a really difficult pregnancy. Um, and through that, um, through that time, the treatment that I received from some of the club officials were inhuman. Um, they weren't really bothered about the fact that I was at training one day and I get a phone call to say there's, there's no heartbeat. After Azim made a complaint about his treatment by a Yorkshire staff member, the club's tone changed. Six or seven players made a complaint about Tim Bresen that year, but I was the only one that got the repercussions of that, and I was the only person of colour. I mean, I first raised it as bullying in 2017. I've seen board minutes now uh, a month before, and it calls me as the leader, potential captain, driver on the field, someone that... Potentially, we should build a team around, especially in white ball cricket. On the flip side of it, the board minutes say I'm a problem, a troublemaker, uh, and an issue that needs to be resolved. And I feel that that then blinded them into how they treated me through the pregnancy and the loss of my son. I want to become the voice for the voiceless. Uh, I want to try and help people that, um, that are suffering this without it getting to a point where it's got for me. I want to help. Uh, young players coming in the game for the, getting them ready for the challenges but actually counties to change the environments and cultures so these people can achieve their dreams. If you look at the stats, British Asian, specifically British Asian representation in professional cricket since 2010 has had a drop of nearly 40%. The, grass, the recreational game has over 30% representation from the British Asian and that drops to a mere 4% at professional level. Mm. Even if Azim didn't quite realise it at the time, the select committee was only the beginning. Suddenly, overnight, his face was across every major broadcaster and newspaper, and his story was driving a national conversation about racism in cricket and across UK sport. I think for me, you know, I just wanted to go there and just tell what I've mm. gone through. And once I was sat in that room, 
you know, I did the, my life changed outside of that room, and I, you know, I didn't really know, didn't really understand it for a while, to be honest. We did the media round the next day, me and Mark hurrying around London, and again, even at that point, Mark was like, "Do you realise how significant this is?" It was from there on that I realised what was going on. As you might have guessed from the audio, Azim joined Powers Court's event via webcam from Dubai, where he is now living. In the wake of his whistleblowing, threats of violence and the vandalism of his family fish and chip shop in Barnsley made Azim worry about the safety of his loved ones and his employees. Eventually, things got so bad that he felt he had no choice but to leave the UK. The scrutiny, I guess, at level and where some of the media articles were coming from were just riling up a lot of local people, and Yorkshire Post, the World Heritage, can be throughout. And what that was causing is locally a lot of abuse, you know, if we were on the streets and, you know, my family house was being targeted. I just felt like I was waiting for something really bad to happen. I've got young kids uh, and I just felt like I needed to protect them, their physical safety and their psychological safety moving forward. I made the choice to speak out, you know, the consequences that I have to deal with. I'll live with it and deal with it. Uh, but I just think when it was starting to affect my wife, my kids, my mum and dad, to that extent, I couldn't take any more risks. Keeping the fight for institutional change central to Azim's story was particularly difficult. Much of the reporting instead focused on individual cases of wrongdoing and disputes about exactly who said what, rather than the real core issue at hand. The level of stuff we were having to deal with, I think between five and 10 inquiries a week, stories changing, fabricating, witnesses coming out of everywhere, but. You know, throughout all of this, to have the support I had, which was 24-7, but also just understanding that there was a bigger cause of play and staying calm through that was uh, quite important because, you know, I think what, what I felt was the attempt to do there was to get me all flustered and emotional um, and get away from the actual issue, which is what everyone wants to do. But I think we stayed quite focused on the cause and hopefully we've been able to get across the reality of the game and now it's for the game to really make sure that that it learns and makes the changes. You know, I'm always the last half ball hopeful that slowly and surely we'll get there and the game will look back at this as a point that made a different direction. The amount of times I said to them, I'm giving you examples of why I feel what I feel, but it's very important that we don't make this about individuals. In the end, it became very much about individuals because that Yorkshire regime was so scared of the phrase institutional racism Although Azim's case has reached something of a conclusion and he has been vindicated by the English cricket board, others in the room listening to his story are still actively fighting for justice. Taking on institutional racism in sport is a daunting prospect, as Azim and Mark both found out. But what happens when it's the police that need holding to account for discrimination and failures in the most tragic of circumstances? At one of three breakfast tables sit sisters, Zainab and Ruki, who have been relentlessly campaigning for justice following the unsolved murder of their brother, Ola. Following Azim and Mark's conversation, they shared their own painful experience. Our brother was murdered eight years ago in London, and at the time there was an investigation into his murder, which was quite lacklustre at the best of times, and now here we are eight years on still looking for answers. At just 20 years old, Ola was stabbed and shot while riding his bike near his home in Peckham in April 2015. An investigation was opened, suspects were identified, and Ola's family had faith in the police. 
I think at the time we were quite trusting and there were suspects that were identified quite early on and so we just thought it was a question of following the judicial process to bring them to the forefront. But serious doubts quickly grew over the handling of the case. The sisters have since questioned whether the murder was taken seriously by the police. They worry that Ola was seen as just another young black man by those investigating his death. What soon transpired is a comedy of errors, a lack of urgency and just no due diligence and care into the investigation, which has meant that it has never been fully resolved. And as a result, we still have questions eight years on. At the beginning of 2023, a Scotland Yard report found that the Metropolitan Police investigation of Oda's murder was seriously flawed. Significant failures by seven officers meant key witnesses were not questioned, documents went missing from police records, and Ola's family were not even told in person when the case was closed due to a supposed lack of evidence. At first, the media were very supportive in raising awareness of Ola's death and helping his family's search for answers. But attention soon moved on to the next story. There was a lot of initial interest and the story was picked up by a number of media outlets, which we thought was quite promising in terms of raising awareness. Unfortunately, what we've since learned is that with cases like these, they are unfortunately, you know, common. And so I think there's a question of people being desensitized, both in the public and in the media, to stories like this. And so after the initial coverage, the news pretty much died down very, very quickly, which takes the pressure off. Zainab and Ruki also found that, to their frustration, some journalists wrote sensational articles and twisted their testimony. I think that we found ourselves sometimes at the mercy of the media. Um, you put yourself out there, you have these in-depth conversations, and you try and give as much detail as you can in the hope that the story will be picked up. Sometimes it is picked up, sometimes it's retold in a way that's not your voice. Sometimes you find elements that are amplified that perhaps aren't the areas that you think require that level of detail. Yeah, it's a bit of a game of cat and mouse, to be honest. However, the sisters are still quick to stress the importance of media support as they continue to call for the police to reopen Ola's murder case. Scotland Yard's Specialist Crime Professional Standards Unit, which examined how the murder was handled by police, has agreed that the investigation should be relaunched and that the family deserve an apology. The media helps to keep not only public awareness open, but also pressure on those bodies and organisations to do the right thing. And I think that by using their resources in a more nuanced and, and, and careful way, they can really help people like us to ensure that our voices are heard. I mean, the media is a body that can do so much more and it would be really beneficial if they listened and, and provided us with the support that and amplified our voices in, in a much bigger way. With such a crowded 24-hour news agenda, a sense of basic humanity can often be lost. Two sisters still trying to process the grief of losing their loved one while fighting the Met for justice becomes just another story on the ever-churning newsreel. But the people at the centre of these stories should not be forgotten. News editors must remember that these are the moments where media support and campaigning journalism can really make a difference. And although newsrooms have stood up against discrimination and fought on behalf of victims on many, many occasions, some do, at times, find themselves on the wrong side of the story. Joining Azim, Mark, Ruki, Zainab and our other guests 
was journalist Simon Mosin. She spent years as a foreign correspondent, covering the death of Osama bin Laden, leading the world exclusive investigation into the shooting of activist Malala Yousafzai, interviewing presidents, prime ministers and even terrorist leaders. A British Pakistani born and raised in South London, she is fluent in English, Punjabi, Urdu and, just for good measure, French. To become an international correspondent was the stuff of dreams for a woman like me from South London, British Pakistani family, Muslim background. To be a foreign correspondent based in one country would have been amazing. I covered 28 and I absolutely loved it and thrived in it. In 2014, while on occasion in Jerusalem for CNN, Saima suffered a life-changing accident. Her team were reporting on the Israel-Palestine conflict when one of her colleagues, a cameraman, ran over her foot with their two-ton jeep, crushing it. Saima was left with extensive tissue damage, chronic pain and a long, challenging road to recovery. Seeking support, Saima went to CNN, her employer, to discuss her case with hopes that she could move to a role with less travel that still made the most of her skill set. She had been a producer, newsreader and presenter across the BBC, ITV and Channel 4 earlier in her career, so returning to a newsroom's inner workings would be familiar territory. CNN refused. When she raised the suggestion of becoming a presenter, Simon says that she was told, you don't have the look we're looking for. The channel then terminated her contract. I went in talking about rehabilitation and getting back to work, but working part-time while I did that. And they picked up a piece of paper and terminated my contract and escorted me out the building. You know, it was so shocking, so shocking to me. Though Saima is now suing her old employer for wrongful dismissal and disability discrimination, she makes it clear that she recognised unfair treatment well before that particularly traumatic episode. As a, a brown British Pakistani woman, I faced this my entire life, right? I faced it in my personal life and my professional life. But at CNN, it became such that I could no longer deny it and find it acceptable or push it down to the bottom and, and get on with the job, quite literally. In August, Simon won the right for her case against CNN to be heard in the UK, against the wishes of the international broadcaster. With the help of a close legal team and key communication support, she continues to fight against the institutional discrimination that she and many others have been the victim of, not just in terms of disability, but gender and race too. So this is an unfair dismissal case, essentially unfairly dismissed. And the basis of that is disability discrimination. But look, I'm undeniably, I've said it before, a brown woman. So race comes into this, gender comes into this. I can't isolate one aspect of myself from the others. I spent a lot of time reflecting after my injury, when I'd suddenly lost my job and I had a breakdown and I was recovering to think about and reflect on everything I'd been through and realize, look, I'm being held as a role model. This British Pakistani woman who's been the first XYZ, you know, the first presenter to do this, the first correspondent to do that. What is the point in leading the way for the next generation or other women like me if I don't then tell the world the realities of what I've done and how I've done it and what I've been through? What has made a huge difference to Saima, though, has been the support she has received so far, even if there is still a mountain to climb. I think I found through this process there's a lot of people reluctant to stand by you and there are a lot of people who are willing 
to be really amazing allies. So there's still work to do, right? Because this, as I said, is a system. It's an institutional issue, whether it's disability discrimination, race discrimination, gender and sexism, equal pay. Whether you're fighting institutional discrimination in sport, employment or the justice system, for better or for worse, the media will always play a central role in campaigns for justice. Thank you for listening to the Friday Fix Power Squad Perspectives. Join us next time, where we'll be exploring how the UK can foster the next generation of renewable energy technology, secure investment, and make the most of the COP28 summit in December. <laughs>